special guest speaker today is from our own church. Come on up here, Dick. Dick Bransford um, has uh, actually just uh, May 16th returned from Africa. He is a, uh, a surgeon and uh, has been in Africa over 40 years um, and is supposedly retired now, but he goes, I don't know, five or six times a year. He just was there for a month uh, doing uh, surgery. In March, he got inducted into the Hall of Fame for medical missionaries. How about that? So, um, his, uh, his daughter, Bethany, and son-in-law, Edward Dincham, go to church here. And his, two of his grandkids, Kieran and Alessandra. So, Dick, we're looking forward to hearing what uh, God's been up to recently and just in your life. So, thank, thank you. you. I thought when he released people for Kids Zone, I might go, but I guess I better not. <laughs> uh, this is a picture of my wife and myself uh, a few years ago. And uh, my wife is my best counselor in most ways. And one of the things she's counseled me over the years is don't preach, tell the stories. And she's right. I'm not a very good preacher. Uh, I love the Word of God. I love delving into it. I love devotional times. But I'm, I've had a lot more stories come into my life than, than I like to admit at times. <clears throat> if we had to pick a verse today, I'd say John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think it's one of the verses that are most known but the least believe because we don't believe people will perish hardly. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? That's the Muslim prayer call. Comes out of a hundred minarets in the town I go, town I go to. It grows in volume from the east as the sun comes to the west. And you'll first hear a little bit, and then it grows until you think he's sitting in your room with you. Nine days ago, I was in the midst of this. It began about 3.34 in the morning and then swelled to 4.30. Didn't make you sleep very well, honestly. The intention is to summon the Muslims to prayer. There are 1.6 billion Muslims, 1.6 billion Muslims, 23.4% of the world population. Uh, 1.6 billion is over four times the population of the United States. Some people say it's summoning them to prayer. Other people would say it's summoning them to a Christless eternity, Christless eternity. And there are people that we, we need to, in spite of all that we see and all our gut feelings, feel toward them when we see certain things that are being done. We need to love them. 2001, in the country I just came from, four expats, four foreigners, one Swiss, two British, uh, one Italian, were all murdered. And then all the Christians that were working there left that country. Uh, two other doctors and I said in 2006, we'd like to go visit that country. We wanted to visit that country. 2006, our company experts, now company is the word for mission society 
or a whole variety of different things. Our company experts told us there is no known Christian in that country, either national or expats at that time. But we thought maybe we should go. Uh, there were no Christians, and this is the country we flew into. While I was 65 then, often referred to as the age of retirement in the past, the other two doctors were younger. But the three of us were probably somewhat foolish. Maybe they were even more foolish than I was. We departed from Kenya on an airline that we probably should not have been on. We landed in a country we definitely should not have been in. And we finally ultimately arrived at our destination, or what I call our target country, although target may not be a very good name for it. Uh, we boarded a bus after we got a visa. On the bus, uh, we got settled in, and the bus driver came back and said, you're not supposed to be in this bus. You're supposed to have an armed guard. And we discussed this or argued it a little bit, and he finally said, well, you can stay in the bus as long as you put your coat over your head when we go through police stops. And so we did that, and three hours later, we were in the capital city, and the following day, we were in the town we were headed toward, a town of 200,000 with the only medical school in the country, and that medical school had never graduated a student. We came covertly. We went to the hospital, not knowing if we would find two or 20 patients, not expecting very many, because we had come in covertly. Uh, Harry, um, pardon me, uh, the hospital, by, even by African standards, was poorly maintained. They had 12 to 13 nurses for the whole hospital, for the whole 24 hours, for 130 beds. Harry, the other doctor, other surgeon, went to one ward, the adults, and Mark and I, Mark is a pediatric anesthesiologist, and I went to the children's ward. When we came there, we found wall-to-wall -wall people, and we discovered that the British Broadcasting, BBC, had published this over the radio. And so people came not only from the country we were visiting in, but from four regions around. And they didn't come because we were so good, but just because they didn't have anybody. There were no orthopedists. No uh, plastic surgeons, no pediatric surgeons, uh, no neurosurgeons in the whole area. People came from even as far as 500, next. This is the operating room we were in. We put two beds in the same small operating room, and both of us went to work. Next. And these are the two young ladies that came along to help us. They were both medical students in their third year of training out of six years. They both uh, basically uh, helped us to the extent that we could have never hoped for. Both Muslim ladies. One is now training in orthopedics. The other one is training in being a new mother of a child that's less than a month old. Uh, our covert trip, as I said, was uh, found out. People came from as far away as 500 miles. You know what's 500 miles from Boone? Chicago? New York? Orlando? People came from those distances because they didn't have anything. Um, these ladies helped us get started. They helped us identify patients, helped us to work into the operating room. And the next morning, uh, we were busy. Uh, one of the, while I was operating at one table, like the one there on the right, uh, one of the girls was helping me. Uh, a young, another medical student came along behind me, a young lady. And she leaned over and she said, I've never met a Christian. I've never met a Christian. I've never met a Christian. She only said it once, but I'm, I'm saying that for emphasis. 
those words still ring in my ears and ache in my heart. And I went on and on my notes, I said, shame on us. Shame on us. We have so much access to the gospel. We have so much access to the word of God. And yet some people in our world today can say, I've never even met a Christian. I'm not talking about four spiritual laws. I'm talking about even met a Christian. These are the words that drive a 73-year-old surgeon back five times a year for probably about 10 days. Anyhow, let's go back to my closed country, the country to which I travel about five times a year. By the way, a closed country is also called a creative access nation. And what that basically means is that we have to create a reason for ourselves to be there. Harry's reason, he's a general surgeon. They need people's gallbladders out and thyroids taken out. Mark's reason, he's an anesthesiologist. He's got to put them to sleep so he can take out the gallbladders. And my excuse is I work with disabled kids. But we have to have a reason for being there, an excuse. That day we operated from 8 a.m. to about 5.30 p.m., took a brief break, and went back and taught from 6 to 9.30 at night. We taught all the students in the school from all six years, women on the right, men on the left. And it was a busy day. It was a busy day. At the end of that week, we began weaving our way back to our home country, back to Kenya, where we'd lived for 30-plus 30, 30 years at that time. And uh, we were thinking and praying, and each one of us went back regularly for a number of years. Now, it's eight years later. The nature of our trips have changed a little bit. These are the type of patients we saw there. They weren't the mild aches and pains you prescribed an aspirin for. Next. They were cleft lips. They were burn contractures. The girl at the bottom with the tremendous burn, Segal, came from two and a half days away by road. When she arrived there, I said, uh, I'm sorry, we're leaving tomorrow. And she burst into tears. She says, it, it took me two and a half days. It cost me $150 to come here. And I said, I can't take care of you. The girl on the right in the lower is Anissa. Anissa burned terribly. And her only wish was, I, can, I, I wish I could feed myself. She can feed herself now. We've done about six or seven operations on her. Our trips in no way are heavy in evangelism. My, my work is burn contractures, hydrocephalus, spina bifida, and other congenital and acquired anomalies. But we're not heavy into evangelism. I tell people that I try to pray theology. What is praying theology? I pray that, tell people that God loves us because Muslims don't know that God loves them. Uh, it's not by works but by grace Muslims don't know that. They think they, they've got to do the works to gain enough merit to get into heaven. And heaven is for eternity, and we will enjoy the presence of God. They don't believe that. They don't want to see God when they get to heaven. They, don't want, to, they want to get to heaven, but they don't want to see God. God loves children. Muslim people, God loves boys, but girls are a second-rate citizen. Marriage is meant to be happy. Most of the young ladies that I've known who have gotten married are not very happy about their marriages. And so on. We talk about a lot of things. If you're a surgeon, you look like you're kind of lazy because you're always in there just doing things. But you get to talk a lot. And we pray over our patients. Sometimes the, the, the people, we go in to, to begin an operation, and I pick up a knife, and they look at me. And I think, why, why are they looking at me? And occasionally they, uh, they turn to me and say, aren't you going to pray? Aren't you going to pray? And my hope is that 
Somehow, as I pray theology, somehow they'll know more of the God we love and the Savior who's come into our lives and the freedom that comes by grace and not by works. The group we worked with for 34-plus 30, years in Kenya was called the African and the Mission. Just to give you a brief background, the African and the Mission, the person who commissioned our founder was Dr. Simpson, the person that established Christian Missionary Alliance. My feeling is Dr. Simpson didn't care whether you were a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, Assemblies of God, or what have you. He just wanted to see the world come to a personal, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. As long as your, your, your doctrine was reasonably stable, he was thrilled with it. So we were primarily in Kenya. I made periodic trips to a variety of countries, Rwanda and Somalia, South Sudan, DRC, Uganda, Indian Ocean Island, and this closed country. In 1982, I visited a child care center seen here in this picture. This is my best picture. It was made 34, 32 years ago. As I took me into that room, this is the preschool room, and I saw the crutches on the floor, and I saw the braces in their kids, and the nurse turned to me and said, Can you help us? I take these kids all these different places, and I can't get help. Can you help us? And I didn't want to tell her I'd never done an operation on a child with polio. I'd never done an operation on a child with cerebral palsy or burn contractures hardly. And I said, we'll try. And that was the best adventure that ever happened to my I was taken out of my comfort zone. I was taken where I was not comfortable, but he was comfortable. And he taught me. Um, while I was trained as a general surgeon, for the next 20 years I concentrated on disabled kids like Daisy, who you'll see next. Uh, she was a sweetheart. She's dead now. She'll meet me in heaven. Someday you can ask me. I'll tell you about the gospel according to Dick Bransford with regard to disabled children. Next. This is Francisca on the left. Francisca has spina bifida. She had a number of disabilities. She eventually got married to Peter. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and I prayed for them, and they had Jeremy. Uh, they're thrilled. She's an evangelist. She leads about 20 people to the Lord every school term. Every school term. Uh, the next one is, is uh, Lucy. Lucy has what's called a frontal encephalocele. Very different. I'd never seen one until I saw Lucy. Next. Michael had even a worse frontal encephalocele. I prayed for Michael a lot. Michael was HIV positive, his mom was HIV positive, his mom was a prostitute. I learned to love both of them very much. Next. And then this Kevin Kamau was my first shunt, I believe. We did this in about 1991. And things grew, and they, things grew. Did you know that 3 to 10% of the world are disabled? Do you know what 3% of the world's population means? It's like having everybody in the country of France being disabled. Or if we take all of Canada, it's like having two Canadas that's totally disabled. That's in many ways became my mission field and my perspective. They were an unreached people group. I know that sounds kind of funny, but they were an unreached people group. Now I work primarily in the capital city of the closed country where I go. I'm training three young doctors, all ladies and all friends now. They were medical students when I first went there. Two are now very good at inserting shunts. Two are now very good at doing operations for burn contractures. They're learning about club feet. These are ladies that stepped out of a 
not a mediocre medical school, an absolutely poor medical school, and who have come forth to be reasonable doctors. In some cases, I enter the operating room, and uh, they're there, and we're, we're, they're scrubbed up, and sometimes I'm scrubbed, sometimes I'm not, and I turn to them and I say, what are you planning to do in this operation? And they explain it to me, and I step back and smile at them, and I say, I'll be across the hall having coffee if you have any problems. And what they know is that that means I trust them. I trust them. And we've developed a, a very good relationship. They understand. Over a year ago, a like-minded Christian worker for the company in this country came to my room at night. And he said, uh, have you ever thought about maybe inviting your Christian, your Muslim friends to a dinner and in that dinner just sharing a little bit about your relationship with Christ and I had to say no I've never thought of that <laughs> that's very threatening to me but I began thinking about it and uh, before I could come back the next time this friend was already kicked out of the country for sharing the gospel since then another team has been kicked out of the country a whole team of doctors and uh, their explanation was the government came to them and said, we can't guarantee our sa your safety. This is because a Muslim imam had said to them, uh, if we can't get rid of these Christians some way, we'll target their wives and children. We'll target their wives and children. And uh, that makes a big difference to many of us. We can, we can personally take the danger, but we not, can't take it for our kids and family. The situation has some similarities to 1976 when we lived with our young family in an Indian Ocean island uh, for about a year and a half. They were 100% Muslim. There was one known Christian for 300,000 people. One known Christian for 300,000 people. Uh, there were rumors of coups every week. I mean, literally every week. None occurred during our watch, so to speak. The next year after we left, a coup did occur. Now, on that island, I was, I tell people, I was the chief of surgery and the chief of obstetrics and gynecology. And they look at me like I'm some esteemed person. Medical Missions Hall of Fame, that really doesn't mean much. But anyhow, they look at me like that. And uh, I go on to tell them, I was, the main, I was these chiefs in a 350-bed main government hospital in the capital city. And then I tell them, there were only two doctors in that hospital. I was the chief of this, and the other doctor was the chief of 200 beds and everything else. Um, and I was the only practicing surgeon in the island, so they didn't have too many choices for chiefs. We had a couple join our team later that were a little too aggressive in evangelism. They eventually were kicked out of the, uh, the country, declared persona non grata, and uh, the government called all the different workers group in and said, if you have to share your faith, you're not welcome here anymore. And so our leadership decided that we should leave. <clears throat> Shortly before our departure, I crossed the street from where we used to live. Mohammed was a Sudanese person, engineer, working for the Kuwait Fund. I said, Mohammed, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, we're going to have to leave the country. Uh, I enjoyed our friendship. He looked at me and he said, Dick, if you were a good Christian, you wouldn't leave us now. This is from a Muslim man. If you're a good Christian, you wouldn't leave us now. Now, those are the type of comments that remain with you your entire life. Once again, I'm going to digress. In 1992, uh, there was a starvation in the northern frontier of Kenya, northeastern Kenya. 
These were some of the kids. Uh, the little boy in the middle at the bottom, Bethany took care of one day. Uh, we think that he died, his brother died, uh, most all of them. There had been a starvation in the northern frontier. There had been a civil war in Somalia. Uh, the, we had been praying that the door would open to allow people to go into Somalia, this 100% Muslim country, and share the gospel. And the door did open, but instead of going into the country, the door opened outward, and they all came out. This German missionary nurse asked me to come up and look at what was going on there, and it was heartbreaking. There were graves everywhere. There were little wasted, starved kids, and uh, the smell of death was everywhere. I returned in November. This was July when I first went. We went back in November and went up to a town right at the juncture of Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya. Uh, went there looking for an excuse to come and work there amongst the Somalis, and we could not find one. The last evening before we were to leave, uh, our, our ladies that were with us said, we were out of drinking water. So they walked over to one of the NGOs to buy some drinking water, and they were asked, did you find a reason to come back? And they said, no, we really just haven't found where we would fit in. They said, have you talked to the head of the United Nations group? I said, no. I usually don't talk to the United Nations in case you want to know. But maybe it was 6.30 Sunday night. We'll walk down the street. There won't be anybody in their office, so we'll just knock on the door and we say we fulfilled all our things. So I walked down the street with about three others. We knocked on the door, and somebody came to the door. And I said, would Mr. Falston be in? They said, uh, uh, yes, just a second. There were only two people in the office. He went over. And Mr. Falson came to the door, I handed him my card, and he said to me, he looked at the card, and he looked up at me, and he said, I'm so happy you've come. The world has sent its people, but the Christians have not come. And he sent me for on a 45-minute guilt trip, uh, saying, you must come, you have to come. He said, if it's just a matter of money, he says, I can write you a check for $50,000 to get you equipped to come. And I said, maybe I better talk to my wife a little bit. And uh, I returned home shortly thereafter to Kajabi. Uh, we went on a, a holiday to the coast. It was the first time we ever stayed in a hotel at the coast. First time, therefore, we ever had access to a telephone because this was long before cell phones. The second day we were there, we got a call from the head of World Medical Missions. And at that time, Dr. David Stevens, he said, uh, would you consider being our medical director in Somalia? The U.S. troops went in the end of 1992. This was the end of 1992. Would you be willing to go in in January, be the head of our team for a few months? And I explained I'd need to talk to the, get permission from the head of the hospital at Kajabi. He said, I've already done that. We'll put a replacement in for you. You've got his permission. So I turned and I said, well, maybe I ought to talk to my wife and kids. So I talked to Millie and she said, that's fine. After dinner that night, I took our twins out that were 15. We also took Joshua out that was 10 months old. And we sat by the pool, and I explained what I'd been asked. And uh, John said uh, to me at 15, he says, Dad, you have to go. This is what we've been praying for. And I'm very proud of my son for being, having the insight to say, this is what we've been praying for. So Mogadishu became my next step for the first three months of 1993. Um, while there, I turned to some of our staff. We were, we were Christians, but our staff was all Muslim. At an appropriate time, I said, do you have any Christians in this country? They said, well, there may be a handful. 
But if we find them, we take them out in the street and shoot them. Take them out in the street and shoot them. Next picture. This is Somalia, 1993. Next picture. This is uh, what we did for mobile clinics. That room in the right-hand upper corner, uh, the end of it was blown out by gunfire, mortars. Next. And this was my transfer. This is Ahmed. Ahmed was a Christian before I came. Ahmed was a, quote, eye nurse. A few months after I left, he was taken out in the street and shot. I've got digressed a lot. Let's go back to the main stage where we were. Before I left home on April 24th of this year, Millie said to me, exhorted me. Wives do that, you know, in case you don't know husbands. They said, be more bold uh, during this trip. I was reminded of Hebrews 4.16 where it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with boldness or boldly so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Boldness, boldness, boldness. Tim, one of the workers that works with our company in that country, I said to him casually, I said, what is the Lord teaching you, Tim? He said, uh, to be more bold. That word just kept coming. And uh, I, he said, let me tell you about this last week. I've had five times I've been able to present the gospel. Now, when presenting the gospel is not the four spiritual laws, but being able to talk about Jesus Christ. Um, while I was there, I was reading in the book of Acts in my, for my devotions. Acts 4.29 said, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And they prayed. The place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, boldly. Wow. My wife, Tim, Axe, it's just a little too much. It was all piling on top of each other. And I thought to myself, healing, signs and wonders, shaken. I, we've just finished in our home life group studying the insanity of God. And it talks about the Chinese church. And it talks about when they go to the non-Christians and say, what, what about the, the, the Christians here? They said, oh, those are the people that raise the dead. Want to try that one on? Want to try that one on? Christians, those who raise the dead, dreams and visions. So I prayed for our patients more boldly. I did what Millie told me to the limit of my faith. But maybe I was not bold enough. One day I was operating and Rick, my son, who's the orthopedic surgeon, uh, was also there. He was in having a cup of tea and he came over afterwards and he said, do you know what happened in the tea room today? He said, we were, we were just uh, uh, sitting there and one of the guys said, oh, here, Rick, this is you when you were young. He was looking at YouTube, and they had looked up on YouTube, and they chased my name and found Christian Medical and Dental Association, Servant of Christ Award, awarded to Dr. Dick and Millie Bransford. And then it shows our whole life, our missionary career, our kids as they're growing up, and that was what happened. Uh, when I had always been known as a surgeon from Kajabi Hospital, a Christian hospital, this was more, this was so much more. When Rick told me I somewhat froze, if, just if, I was to be kicked out of the country, this YouTube video could bring it about immediately. We've heard nothing else. We've heard nothing else there. 
I went from grave doubts to thinking that this might also represent the boldness that I could not easily express openly myself, but this might tell others who my master really was. I was not just a nice doctor of caring for disabled kids, but I was a follower of Christ. I do not yet know what will happen, but please pray, please pray. If it's time for us to, for me to get out, kicked out, God, God knows, but I don't want to engineer it. Now, there's an Ethiopian man, a medical worker in that hospital who came to me one day and he said, I've been sent here by my church. He didn't have to say more. We don't ask for a lot of details. He, and I just, I said, what are you seeing? He said, well, I had a policeman come to me a while back and he said that I had been sleeping and in a dream I committed my life to Jesus Christ. He'd been looking for a Bible for two years when he'd come to my friend. This friend also has students, students he's training, who like to come to his office to do a little reading. They're unprepared to take the reading material out. They're frightened for what would happen to them if they were found with it. But they come in and read covertly. In my lifetime, I've seen my company begin new work in closed countries, creative access nations. They've done a variety of things. They've done work as teachers, tour directors, land salesmen, doctors, and many other ways. If you tell me your profession, I can probably find a place for you in a closed country. In some cases, they stumbled upon disabled people, and they've sent them to me in, in before at Kajabi. One young man came to me. He was about 18, and he, uh, he had polio. And we did some operations. He did reasonably well. He went back to his village. He was the first person in his village to become a Christian. Can I tell you a little-known secret? In Kenya, we've seen between 4,000 and 7,000 people come to the Lord through our work with disabled kids each year, each year. Mercy, the one in the picture above me, or down here below me, uh, is our chaplain. Mercy came to me a few years ago and said, uh, can I train some disciples? I said, that sounds fine, Mercy. What's a discipler? And she went on to explain a person who can lead people to the Lord and help mature them and disciple them, as well as know, know a little bit about disabilities. I said, sure, let's do this. And this work has multiplied our efforts. The next picture shows a, uh, a picture of the map with, of Kenya with all little red dots. That's where our disciples are. And through her, she's multiplied our effect. Uh, you might ask me, what does this cost? We have over 300 disciples now. They're all volunteers. If we add up our spiritual budget, and if we add up uh, the number of people coming to the Lord, it costs us about $3.84 per person saved. $3.84. Just an aside, uh, did you know that 20% of the world... Next picture. 20% uh, of the world, that's 1.2 billion people living less than a dollar a day. Did you know that 50% of the world, 2.8 billion, live in less than $2 a day? Now, a real aside, and this is probably not going to gain me any friends, if you particularly in some realms, I like to watch football. But do you know what a cheap ticket to the ASU game costs? I don't know right now, but anyhow. How many days of survival does this represent, and how many days of food? I'd like to return to the town where the medical school was, in that closed country, a few years ago, I asked a young man who had gone to school with our daughter, Bethany. I said, how many people in your town of 200,000 are Christians? 
He said, zero, zero. He held up his hand and said, zero. Now there's one, but he held up his hand, zero. The next day, as we were driving through the streets, this is the town, as we drove through the streets, there were crowds walking in the streets. And to me, somehow my mental picture was ghost walking, ghost walking over an abyss into a Christless eternity. And a variation of that image continues, and the words perishing, 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 perishing come to mind so often and ring in my ears. You might later turn to the person next to you and say, perishing, perishing. You might wake up at night and think of the word perishing. With a thought, you might ponder the possible exhortation of those perishing. They might say, as the girl said to me, I've never met a Christian. Or, but you never told me. Or, what was success for you when I was perishing? Was it your career? Was it a nice home? Was it the, the decorations? Was it Starbucks or Seattle's best? Or, how much did you pay for those things when I was perishing or when I was starving? On May 15th, this month, a few weeks ago, at 4.30, when the prayer call came, bursting into my room, all windows closed, trying to get out, bursting into my room, I thought, Perishing, perishing. I thought God versus Allah. God is not the same as Allah. The DNA is completely different. God is a God of love who cares for us and sent his son for us. Allah is a God of justice and the balance between its law. God is the God, uh, Allah is the one that they don't want to see. There are a hundred names for Allah, but none of them are God as love. There's no assurance of heaven, yet I also thought about our assurance of salvation in this. We have an assurance of salvation. We have an assurance of going to heaven. But I thought about the potential liberty this gave, gave Christians to possibly pursue selfish personal interest while ignoring God speaking into their lives through Scripture, His Holy Spirit and circumstances. I thought of the purposeful living for Him that this assurance should promote. I thought that we cannot rationalize. We, we may like to rationalize, say, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, pagans will somehow get to heaven, maybe through the stars. God has a witness. We want to do that, but yet Scripture says, I am the way. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We cannot explain away our possible indifference to 1.6 billion Muslims. We don't like what they do, but sometimes they don't like what we do either. We can't excuse our careers, our material commitments, our very being from possibly being a significant part of his plan to save the perishing. Now, the last slide here is just John 3.16. Somehow, God included, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's aware of the perishing. Last slide. This is the girl that I've worked with since my beginning there. Pray for Decca. She's a new mom. A while back I said to Decca, do you ever have dreams? She didn't answer me. The next day she turned to me and she said, Dick, uh, I've looked you up in the web. I didn't answer her. We live a little bit of a symbiosis. So I have ulterior means of being here. It's not to raise money but it's to raise people. We have 1.6 billion Muslims, over four times the population of the United States. They're going to enter a Christless eternity. 
plus a lot of others. And we're responsible because we're part of God's family. And he's entrusted us with the responsibility of being his servants. Don't be satisfied with something less than his very best for your life. Thank you. Let's pray. God, we, we just uh, uh, stumble down a path looking at the massive numbers and not knowing how it all works. It, it works one by one. It's like, how do you eat an elephant? One mouth at a time. How do you get people into the kingdom of God? One person at a time. How do we explain, I've never met a Christian. We're just taking baby steps with these people, but we want you to draw them into your kingdom. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. We thank you that we come by grace and not by works. In Jesus' name, amen.